If you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, this will finish up three weeks uh, in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if you would, uh, when you get that, stand with me and we'll read God's word together. Father, we ask that right now you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word, that you allow it to speak truth into our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, and this week we'll be focusing on the last three verses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. Now, last week we looked at the question of what Jesus did while he was here on earth. And what did he do? Well, remember two things. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. He made himself nothing. Now, remember that Jesus himself had said in Matthew 23 that the greatest among you shall be your servants. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Well, whoever humbles himself will be exalted by whom? Well, by the Father. Jesus was obedient to the Father, and the Father exalts the humble. Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. See, the Lord loves to exalt the humble. And there's been no one who has ever been humbled as greater, greater way than Jesus did by going to the cross, for, not for his sins, but for ours. Therefore, no one else can ever be as highly exalted as he is. And because of what he did, he has now been highly exalted and given a name that is above every name. It kind of like a bow beginning pulled back, right? That Christ descended down in order to ascend to the highest place. See, Jesus had left behind his flesh, or his heavenly glory, in order to put on human flesh. In John 17, 5, Jesus had said, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so now, with the cross behind him, Jesus has put on has resumed his rightful place, he is highly exalted. 
And the word that Paul uses here for highly exalted is actually can be translated super exalted. So it's used nowhere else in scripture. So he is exalted in the highest sense. There is nothing that can compare to him. And his super exaltation has resulted now in a name that is above every name. Now, what is in a name? Is it important? As one of my favorite poets, uh, Billy Shakespeare, once said, a rose by any other name is still what? Just as sweet. It's still a rose. I kind of disagree with that a little bit, though. Names are so important. Throughout Scripture, we see that God uses names to signify either what he has done in someone's life or what he's going to do in someone's life. We think back to Abram, who's given the name Abraham after he makes a covenant with God, or Saul, whose name is changed to Paul after his conversion. Now, expectant parents and expectant mothers spend an inordinate amount of time trying to come up with names for their new offspring. And and I'm sure James and Bess have even started this. um, Sorry, uh, James and Bess are expecting. Uh, I'm sure they've even started this process themselves. You're going through, okay, what kind of name do we want to give this child of ours? Okay, it's it's so important. Now, when we were expecting our first child, uh, I would come home from work, and Megan had a notebook. I kid you not, it was filled with names, all the different names that she liked. I'm talking hundreds of names. And, and to make matters worse, we didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl, so we had to have, you know, this half of the notebook was the boy names, and this half of the notebook was the girl names. And, and I was so supportive and sensitive that I would come home, and I'd, I'd get her notebook, and I would take my pen, and I would just start crossing names off, okay? And, and literally, I crossed off every single name that she had written down that she found. Is that accurate? It's 100% true. Okay, and she thought that this was because I was, you know, not, not ready to be a, a dad and, and shirking my responsibilities. However, in my mind, and, and I'm always right, of course, um, <laughs> how could somebody have so many acceptable names? There could be at most like three names that are any good to name your kid. How could you have a list of hundreds? It, it made no sense to me. And, of course, you know, I'd named all three of our children um, as a result because any name I threw out, she would just love it because she loved every name. So, so is a name important? They are. In this passage, we're going to find out what is, in fact, the greatest name of all. This is the name to end all names, the name that is above all names. So we're going to look at what is this name, why is it important, And what does it mean to us? Okay, first, what is the name? Look back to the beginning of our passage. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. What is the name above all names? Naturally we think what? Jesus. Well, that's not it. That's, That's not the right answer. So the name Jesus is actually a transliteration of the Aramaic word Yesu, which is itself derived from the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which means the Lord saves. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. And to us, the name Jesus sounds very holy and sacred, and we would never think about calling our kids Jesus, but we might say it when we stub our toe, right? Um, 
However, the name of Jesus was incredibly common during the first century. The ancient historian Josephus records at least 12 different people that had the name Jesus. We even see in the book of Acts that there's this magician who's Simon Bar-Jesus. Jesus was a very common name. It would be like Joshua today for us. Even today, in some cultures, think Latin American cultures, people are still named Jesus or Jesus. The name Jesus is important, and it tells us about what he did, and it symbolizes the mission that he had, but the name Jesus is not the name above all names. See, Jesus already had this name before he had returned back to heaven, so it must be something else. Well, Jesus had some other names as well. To mention a few, he is called the Prince of Peace, the Christ, the Messiah, the Word, the Bread of Life, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the Door of the Sheep, the Chief Shepherd, the Good Shepherd, a Lamb without spot or blemish, and a Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And again, these names are significant, and they are important, but they are not the name above every name. So what is the name? Well, we have to look into the next verse to find it. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the name is found in this confession. The name above all names is Lord. Now, Lord actually doesn't even sound all that special. In fact, to me, sometimes it kind of sounds generic. You know, you read it over and over again. But what is important about that name? Well, the word Lord here in Greek is actually Kyrios. It is also the Greek Old Testament word for the Hebrew name Yahweh or Jehovah. This is the personal name of God. So there's two words, there's two Hebrew words that our Bibles translate to the word Lord. The first one is Adonai, which is kind of the generic Lord. This means my Lord or my God. And our Bibles distinguish that by giving a capital L and a lowercase o-r-d. So if you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, and it's got a capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that's this word Adonai. It's kind of a generic word for God. But there's another word that our Bibles translate into Lord, and this is the Hebrew name Yahweh. When you see that, when this shows up in our Bibles, it is a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all small caps, but they're all capitalized. So if you've ever been reading your Bible and you're kind of wondering, well, why are there these two different spellings? You know, why is one all caps and the other one is, is uh, small lowercase letters? That, that's why it's distinguishing between the word Yahweh and Adonai. And the name above all names is Kyrios, which translated into Hebrew is Yahweh. Now, why is this name important? Well, to call Jesus Kyrios, to call him Lord, is to proclaim that he is Yahweh. Yahweh, again, this was the personal name of God. This was the name that God had revealed to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus. When Moses said, who shall I say sends me? And he says, tell them, I am that I am sent you. That's Yahweh. It's related to the Hebrew verb to be, I am. It it refers to God's self-existent eternality. That's what Yahweh is. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. 
So the name Yahweh is held in such high regard that it is known as the ineffable name or the unutterable name. You could not speak this name in conversation. In fact, you'd have to replace it with the more generic Adonai. It was not to be spoken by men. They took this name so seriously that Jewish scribes, when they were translating and when they were copying down the Old Testament, when they came to the name Yahweh, every single time, they had to clean their pen and they had to clean their entire body every time they wrote this name. And if they messed up as they were transcribing or as they were, were copying something from one scroll to another, if they made a mistake on the name Yahweh, they would have to discard the entire scroll and start from the beginning. You could lose an entire week's worth of work if you messed up on the name Yahweh. Novice uh, scribes or, or beginner scribes would, would start with the book of Esther because the book of Esther does not contain the name Yahweh. And so they, they could mess up and they could actually correct their work without having to discard all that they had done. So to say that Jesus Christ is Lord is equating him with the one true God, Yahweh. This was the covenant name of God to his people. And it's heresy for, for us to use this name of any person or anything that was not God. But by his actions and by his words, by his death and resurrection, Jesus proved once and for all that he is, in fact, Yahweh. Hebrews 1, verse 3 and 4 says this about Jesus. It says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. See, Jesus is not just God-like. He is not just a God, but he is the one true God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he humbled himself and emptied himself, making purification for sin. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, Jesus sat down. If you've ever worked on a project with Hall Bryant or Jim Batson or Michael Dowdy, you know that you do not sit down until the work is finished. You only sit down when the job is done. See, Jesus sat down symbolized that his mission was over. He sat down to rule and to reign. On the seventh day, God rested because his work in creation was finished. And now after he ascends to heaven, Jesus sat down to show that his work on earth is done. We know Jesus' work is done because he sat down. And where did Jesus sit down? Well, he sat down on the throne. John gives us this incredible image in Revelation chapter 5 of the throne of Christ. In verse 11 through 14, he says, Then I looked and I heard among the, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Well, what was the mission of Jesus? What was his job? It was to save his people from their sins. And he did that by defeating sin and death and Satan. Hebrews 2 tells us that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, his mission was his death. And by his death he destroyed the one who formerly had power over death, the devil. He delivered all who call on his name. See, Jesus sits on the throne. He has resumed his rightful place in heaven. He has all power, all authority. He is no longer humble, but now he is exalted, and in fact, super exalted. He is Yahweh. So to proclaim Jesus as Yahweh is to identify him as the God of the Old Testament. See, there's not two gods. There's just one God. The God of the Old and the God of the New Testament is the same God. And some people kind of get confused on this and they go, well, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. No, I do like the God of the New Testament. Well, they're the same thing. Jesus is Yahweh. And so what does this mean now to us? Well, to acknowledge Jesus as Lord is to submit to his authority. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Already in Revelation, we see that no one will be excluded from bowing their knee to the Lord Jesus. Angels and men, and even demons themselves. Isaiah chapter 45 uh, shows this as well. He says that, By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. See, God had made this promise to his people that there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance to Jesus as Lord. The name, the word kyrios here is, again, it's Lord. But in the first century, this word was used of Caesar. And to declare kyrios Kaiser meant was to say that Caesar is Lord and that he was Lord above all the gods of the Roman Empire, that he was the supreme God among them all. This was used as a litmus test of people that were a part of the empire. You were to declare Kyrios Kaiser, and if you would not do that, you could be punished. In the first century, Christians were forced to confess that Caesar is Lord above Christ. We see through history that people like Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna, was martyred because he refused to do so. So to proclaim for Christians that Jesus Christ is Lord over Caesar could literally mean death for them. But they were submitting to his authority. And there's a day coming when every tongue will confess that not Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Romans 10, verses 9 through 13 tell us, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the name for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, this is the most essential, most important question of our lives that we could ever answer. Have we confessed that Jesus is Lord? Do we believe that? Is Jesus my Yahweh? Is he my Lord? Is he the only true God? See, all through the Old Testament, the Israelites had allowed these um, kind of foreign gods to sneak into their homes. They assimilated with the beliefs of their neighbors. They didn't outright reject false gods, but they, 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 they lived in close contact with those who worshipped them. And slowly but surely, they began to invite these false gods into their own homes. And they didn't typically just out and out stop worshiping Yahweh, but they invited into their worship the worship of these other false gods, these other little gods. They added them to their daily routine of worship. And in doing so, they walked further and further away from the one true God without even realizing what they were doing before it was too late. We might ask the question, do we do the same thing? Now, you might be thinking, there's no, there's no way. I would never worship another God. You know, I, I don't know all of the commandments, but I know that, that, you know, only worship the one true God. That one, at least, I've got down. I would never invite another God into my home. But am I sure? Well, what does a God look like? It's something that I worship. It's something that I devote my time to. It's something that I hold in high regard. It's something that I value above everything else. And false gods can, in fact, come in all shapes and sizes. They can be evil and dark and oppressive. Think of substances or addictions or racism, those type of things. These things are simply pure evil. They're easy to identify. But there can be more mild things, some some things that are more socially acceptable. Things like my bank account or my car or my home or a relationship. They can even be good things like my family or my children, my acts of service, or even my religion can be a God. See, anything that fills that role of Christ in my life, anything that I turn to for comfort and security or value, anything that makes me feel complete that's not Jesus has the potential to be a God in my life. See, foreign gods snuck into the house of Israel slowly over time. They're not dealt with until finally the Lord allowed Israel to feel the weight of their sin, and then the people would repent. And this was a pattern that happened over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. See, Paul tells us here that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, every knee will bow, but not every knee will bow willingly. In heaven, the angels are already doing this. They submit willingly. Under the earth, even the demons confess that Jesus is Lord. They have no choice. They say that and they shudder because they know the power that he holds over them through his death. And one day, every knee will bow on earth. 
See, when Jesus returns, when he comes in his full power and authority, splendor and majesty and righteousness, at that point it will be too late to voluntarily submit to his lordship. For those who confess him as Lord and believe in their hearts, they will bow willingly and gladly and with joy look forward to that day, the day when their king has finally returned. But for those who do not believe, they will still bow. Like those under the earth, it will be a terrible day indeed. The true king will return and there will be a reckoning. The great news of the gospel today, though, is that Jesus is Lord already, whether we believe it or not, whether we confess it or not. But to confess that he's Lord is to recognize that he is God. It is to believe and understand that he died for our sin. It is to know that Jesus did the work for us that we can never do ourselves. See, will we believe that? Will we submit to him as our one true God? Will we get rid of these other gods that sometimes sneak into our camp? Will we trust him for ourselves? So believe today, confess today, bend the knee today while you still have the choice. For Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we know that at times these things sneak into our own lives. And Lord, not all of our little gods are bad things. But they're things that we value above you. Lord, they're things that we put more importance on than you. Lord, open our eyes to the things in our life that hold us back from fully submitting to you and to your authority. Lord, help us to believe and understand what it means to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us to know you in your full power, to understand you and to see you in your true glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.